Good morning to you guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Hebrews chapter 2, favorite chapter of mine. You want to know something about theology? Read the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 2, but it's, it's filled with theology. I'm going to read this Psalms 11 real quick. I said I'd be reading it because of what's going on in Israel. We need to continue to pray for the entire situation, but especially for the peace of Israel. Psalms 11 says this, In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals. Fire and brimstone and and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. I'm going to say it anyway. As I, and I'm a newsaholic, as I look at the news uh, and the protest of the Palestinians, I haven't seen a, a peaceful Palestinian protest yet. It's almost like you just see the venom and the hatred of people. And, and, and it's, it's, it's sad. But like everybody else who don't know Jesus Christ, they need to know the Savior. We are blessed. If you're born again, you're blessed. Because the, the God of the universe called you and drew you unto himself. And then he gave you the faith to believe. So just re- to re- remind yourself as you're looking at what's going on in the world, God drew you, and he's given us a calling to do while we're on this earth, to be his son, his, the, the, the light of the world, that city that sets on a hill. And we can only do that by yielding to the Holy Spirit. We're in Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. Remember, this is written to Jews, to the Hebrews. The temple is still standing. It had not been destroyed yet, and we know That happened in 70 A.D. when it was destroyed. Many have come to faith in this time in Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. But they were feeling the pull. They were feeling the pressure to go back to Judaism. I want to make this point very clear. Judaism brought the Messiah, but Christianity if it never was birthed, Judaism would have died right there. Judaism does not save anyone. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ saves. And in the days of Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees, they had embraced the reality of the spiritual realm, angels and spirits and all of those things, and they were correct. But the Sadducees, 
didn't believe in spirits, angels, and all those. There was even a group in Israel, I would say the population in generally believe. And so the writer of Hebrews, taking for granted that his recipients are familiar with the scriptures and the writings to the Jews, they were convinced, of course, that the angels were involved in the mediation, the giving of the law. They were there. That's what I'm saying. Timothy, 1 Timothy says, for there is one God and one mediator, so that case is closed, between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the Jews assumed since the angels were there, and they were, they had a part in the giving of the law. When it came to writing or the giving in the law, they didn't have that. And remember, the Sadducees, they had to wrestle with this because they only accepted the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Matter of fact, it says in Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, and he said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir, shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with 10,000s of saints. Saints, Kodesh means holy ones. From his right hand came a fiery law for them, speaking of the children of Israel. And it's probable that Paul and Stephen derived from this passage their statement that they made that the angels were ordained, the law was ordained by angels. But notice what he goes on to say, in the hand of a mediator. Galatians 3.19 makes it very clear. It says, Paul says, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Acts 7.53 goes on to say, who have received the law by the directions of angels and have not kept it. The law's authority was greatly boasted because the angels were there. They were always around Yahweh. But to compare uh, Yahweh with the angels or his son was a problem for the Jew, and they can't do that. And this is where the writer of Hebrews is trying to get his audience, the Jews, to see and understand. We're beginning the practical, really, part of the book now. And Hebrews, it really is not an epistle like Colossians or Ephesians. It's a treatise. It's really a commentary. It's a thesis on what faith is truly is. That's what it's all about. And so Paul goes to, I say Paul, and I'll say the writer. In my opinion, it is Paul. I've raised up and trained that it was Paul. You can make a debate on it, but I say Paul. Verse 1 says this, the first exhortation, therefore, we must give the most, the more earnest heed, serious, zealous thought to the things we have heard, and then he gives the warning, lest we drift away. Why? Because the things we have heard are in regards to the finality of the speech of God. This is his 
signing off to the church, to the believers. This is all he's going to say. And he's saying it through his son, Jesus Christ. Chapter 12 in the book of Hebrews, he says this, verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who speaks. And he's going to continue to say, exhorting the Christians. You don't have to run after, you don't have to seek after any other so-called God because there's only one, and I've spoken through him, Jesus Christ. So he says, therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift. Drifting is used of a boat that's tied to its moorings, and it's come loose. And if you've ever been even fishing on a boat or in one of those little tube inflatables, and you're kicked back and you're laid back, you know you don't stay there long, especially if you fall asleep. Before you know it, you go farther and farther and farther out. And a lot of times, you don't even realize you're drifting. And that's the problem. That's the warning the writer is telling us. So he says in verse 2, For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, and that's what the Jews believed. Once again, the, the angels were involved in the giving of the law. If the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, if you believe that the law was supernatural and angels were involved in giving of the law and people who broke the law, there was judgment and recompense, which there are. He says in verse 3, how Paul is speaking, I say it again, how shall we escape? And he puts himself in that. If we neglect so great a salvation, how do we begin to drift? That's the question. We have drifters right now in here. How does that happen? Through neglect. Taking your relationship with Christ for granted. Be, just being in, in the things of life and, and the busyness of life, and you begin to drift away. You, you begin to not read your word as much, or maybe not even read it at all. Pick up a great, do a devotion, but really not in the word. I don't have time. I'm too busy for this. I'm too busy for that. And before you know it, where you are at in your relationship with the Lord, you find yourself mighty far away. I have a question for you. How great is your salvation this morning? We just took communion. We know the price that was paid for this great salvation. And I want to know how great is your salvation this morning? Is it, is it as great as when you first given your life to the Lord? That's the question. Remember, David would pray, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Is Jesus Christ your first love this morning? Does it still blow your mind that he would call you to his kingdom? Or are we one that says, hey, God got a great price when he called me. I, I advanced the kingdom of God. I'm here to tell you, no, you didn't. Nobody does. We don't advance the kingdom. Does it still blow your mind? Because if it did, surely we would extend grace more rapidly to others. Because we know where the Lord has brought us from. 
Are you still in love with the Lord this morning? Who's spoken to us? Is his word still alive and powerful to you? If that's all yes, then you're not drifting. You're still anchored to the Lord. The believers were first called Christians, remember, in Antioch. And it was by the unbelievers, a word that they, it was a derogatory word for them to say that. But they noticed something about these Christians. They took note of the apostles. They may have been unlearned and ignorant men, but they knew enough to give their lives to Jesus Christ. So how do we begin the drifting process? We do the Christian stuff, and we say the Christian stuff. We listen to the Christian stuff, but are we in love with Jesus? When was the last time we sat alone with him and had to have tears come from our eyes thinking of You cared enough about me, the cords of love. You cared enough to draw me and give me the faith to believe in you. That's love. Oh, what a great salvation we have. You know, because I can be guilty of relating to Jesus Christ more as a pastor than the God who saved me. God didn't save me to be a pastor. He saved me to be his son, to be in relationship with him, to to get to know him more. And that I can sit in a room and lift my head and say, thank you, Lord, for saving me because I would have never came to you on my own. You know, the best theology for me is not a good commentary or a good teaching. The best theology for me is knowing how much I love Anthony and Fat Girl and that I would do anything for those two and realizing and understanding that God loves them more. He loves me more, so they're in good hands. That's the kind of God we serve. That's the kind of God that is drawing these Hebrews and hopefully drawing us to a closer relationship with him. And when I find myself drifting, it's because I've cooled, because I've gotten involved once again with Christian stuff, because I've gotten in the momentum of idolatry, the idolatry of Calvary Chapel, my job description, and it's all about him. That's what it should be all about. Nothing more, nothing less. It's about Jesus Christ. So Jesus, we're finding out, we should know, but we'll find out through this book right here. He's vastly superior to angels, to Moses, to Joshua, to Aaron, to the priesthood, to the temple, to the sacrificial system, and God has impressed his face on these things, but when Jesus Christ comes riding in, all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, that's who he is. 
Christ in his work reconciling the world to himself. No priesthood could ever do that. And he did it for you. He did it for us. And he finished it. And when he finished it, he sat down at the right hand of authority. And he still speaks to me when I open my Bible. God speaks to me. So the first exhortation, he says, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift. We have to understand this is a second generation group of believers here. And the church is always one generation from extinction. Verse 3 says, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. What's happening here is the spiritual pressure was about to make these Hebrews stumble. You ever been pressured? You ever, you ever been probably hanging out with the wrong crowd and, and the pressure gets to you and you know you really need to run away and say, I'm getting out of here, but you stay? And I guarantee you, if you stayed, you probably stumbled. That's what's happening to these Hebrews. They're smelling the aroma of the sacrifices. They're hearing all of the good music. They're hearing all of, they're seeing all of the ceremonial displays that the Hebrews would do. And they're saying, all I have to do is believe. And it's not much to this. And there's no uh, theatrics going on. Oh, I remember when I, I used to sing those songs and the incense and all of those things. And God is saying, stay on the right track. You might think I'm plain. You might think I'm simple, but I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He says, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. And see, the proclamation, we have to understand, the proclamation of the gospel was powerful all by itself. Didn't need incense. Didn't need sacrifices. Didn't need any of this stuff. But along with that proclamation, God says, I'm not only going to bring my Messiah to you, he's going to do signs, he's going to do wonders and various miracles, all to verify the gospel, the Christian message. Once again, how do we drift? This is so important. How do we drift? We forget what a great salvation is ours. We begin to neglect time. With the Lord. I'll just tell on me this morning. Y'all would never do anything like this. You, you, you begin to say, I've got other things to do, so I'm not going to do my morning reading or my afternoon reading. I'll maybe I'll pick up a quick devotion and read something from that. Uh, grab a little scripture that you have in those little boxes. Oh, I've, I've got enough of the Lord right now. So the first sign, and it all boils down. We don't like this word. I like it. Not good at it, but I'm, I'm trying to be, is a lack of discipline. That's not a nasty, dirty word. That's a great word. And that's neglect. And what, what happened, it becomes infectious once you slow down, once you stop doing the things that you fell in love with the Lord with. You start doing less and less and less. But we have a great opportunity every week to sing praises to the Lord, to study his word, to allow God a chance to minister 
to our hearts, to cleanse me, to wash me, to align me up with his word again. Peter says something very spiritual because he got it from the Lord. If we've forgotten, he says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 through 9, by which, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, there it is, instead of neglect. That's what we're being warned of. Add to your faith. So, so what this verse is about to say, you, you didn't get it all. when you, you got salvation when you were saved, but walking more in God's holiness, you didn't get it all from the beginning. It takes a little work. It takes a little yielding to the Holy Spirit. It takes a little digging in the word. It takes a little prayer. That's what he's saying. He says, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to godliness brotherly kindness. Oh, I could, I could say that for the rest of the day. That'd be a sermon. And to, brotherly, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful. And that's, that's the goal. In the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted. Oh, I've arrived. I've gotten here. And it gets more detrimental than, than that. He says, even to blindness and has forgotten. That's the problem. That he was cleansed from his old sins. He has forgotten. What a great salvation we have. And the waning and the dying off of fruit in our lives is a direct evidence of that. Brotherly kindness, love, zeal, joy of the spirit. And as we read the last few books in Revelation, by this time, the Son of God, he's signing off. We have to understand that illumination today, we may get an insight into a particular text, but there's no longer inspiration. The book is sealed on that. So Revelation, in the sense, no one can add to the description and where the end of the book of Revelation, it says, God says this, Revelation 22, 18 through 19, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. I'm glad that we have the finality of the speech of God here for us, and it's in Jesus Christ. If God wants to speak through a fish or a tortilla, did y'all did y'all hear about that? These dudes, uh, they 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 were they're a fish market. I'm not going to dwell long on it. It blew me away. A fish market, and he was about to pound the fish, kill the fish, and he runs up to the front of the fish market and he says, this fish talked to me, Jewish guy, this fish, 
And he's talking in Hebrew, and he's telling me that the Lord is coming back. Now, this fact, it was on the news. Y'all watch the news sometimes, you get this stuff. <laughs> and so he was a Christian, though. So he went back and told what was going on. He goes back, but it didn't save the fish. He killed the fish. They're going to make that money anyway. But uh, it just started a great wave. God is speaking in a fish. And I remember Chuck Swindoll, when he said it was uh, was, uh, the Catholic church, the guy was a Catholic. I'll put it that way. And he was at the taco stand, true story, about five years ago. And it was a great crowd of people came because he said the taco shell was speaking, and he was speaking about the coming of Jesus Christ. True story. Pull it up. That's why I'd rather take the word of God more than a talking fish or a talking tortilla because it's signed, sealed, and delivered. And again, not only do I believe, do I believe every word, I believe the cover, I believe it begins where it begins and it ends where it ends, the whole council. But in the Jewish mind, the Jewish mind might be thinking, well, angels are better. You know, if what you're saying is true, why did he come in human flesh? Because we know angels are powerful and they have more authority than man. Why did he come as a man if he's higher than the angels? And he goes on to answer that. Verse 5 says, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place. And he gets this from Psalms 8. And I'm not sure if the writer of Hebrews are being, is he being cynical? Paul can, because he says, but there's one, and they knew the one was David. So he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing, including the angels, that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. That's the problem. And he quotes from Psalms 8, and he starts with the fourth verse, What is man? Sadly, that's where our culture often begins, man. When it evaluates man and the importance of man, God doesn't start there, though. He starts at verse 1 in Psalms 8. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, then, he says, what is man? You have to start there. God that's laid out the universe with the span of his hand. 
God that's so great that he's a mystery that the heavens themselves can't contain him. He sets his glory above the heavens, and yet he can come down to a four-year-old Sunday school boy and teach. He can teach wit to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. He can teach Matthew to sing these songs and have a heart felt for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the God I know. He can minister to these young kids. He says, the sun, the moon, the stars is the work of your fingers. And after he says that, then God says the question can be asked. After you've seen all these things I've made and spoken to existence, then you can come and say, what is man? Man gets in his right perspective. Then after you look at God, that's what he's saying here. Not a little higher than the monkeys, that's not man, but a little lower than the angels. Now, I'm here to tell you, if you're an evolutionist and you want to be a little higher than the monkeys, you can start that group. I'm a creationist. I want to be a little lower than the angels. We can have our little lower than the angels group. They can have their little higher than the monkeys group. But then he incorporates Christ into this of taking the same place as man. And aren't we glad? I'm thankful for that. Making him a little lower than the angels. Latter part of verse 7, he says, you have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Using the psalm to prove that Christ is greater than the angels, even though he comes in the incarnation. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Hasn't happened yet, but it will. It hasn't completely manifested itself yet. But this is what we see now. Verse 9 says, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. I'm so glad that happened. And the purpose, why would God Almighty, who was a spirit being from eternity past, purpose for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, I've read Hebrews, I, I don't know how many times, and I never caught this, and it's right there, glory and honor that he, and then it just, he, the Holy Spirit just puts it in by the grace of God. That's probably because I, I, I've heard about grace so much, grace is here, grace is there, but he slides that in by the grace of God, might taste death. For everyone. This is a remarkable statement. Jesus now made a little lower than the angels. There is no savior, I told you, for angels. They were all created at the same time. They all decided whether they wanted to rebel against God or not. They don't reproduce. I know parents with little kids that I know you think you have little angels, but wait till they grow up. 
you don't. Enjoy your little angels now. Because when they grow up, you find out they're, they're, they're not little angels. Our problem is Adam's sin. And sin affected us. And we get to choose when God reveals himself to us. Hopefully, we choose Christ. So he made himself a little lower than the angels for the purpose, here it is, of suffering death. Verse 9 tells us, but we see Jesus, the writer says, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, here it is, might taste death for everyone. That's not a sip. He didn't just sip death. He tasted it, a palate full of it. Everything that death was about, he tasted it for everyone. It means that his palate was filled. He completely tasted death. Usually I'm quick to, if it's a word I really don't understand in the English, I'll quick and get the Hebrew or the, or the Greek text and look and see what it is. And I said, oh, I know what death is. No, no need to look that up. But the Lord has something for me. He said, I want you to see what it is. Jonathan, I know we'll catch this. Thanosto. And I got my little pea brain to think. And I, I'm not a Marvel guy, but I love Infinity Wars. And that tough guy who walked around destroying everybody, Thanos was his name. And I said, that's where they got that name from, Thanos. He says, might taste death for everyone. And then I love the word for, who pair. That tells you to sit on the sideline. If you know anything about baseball, a good hitter will pinch it for a not-so-good hitter because Jesus tells us to sit on the sideline. You can't handle this heat. You can't handle this heat, this heat called death. Let me handle it. That's what the word for, who pair, means. We couldn't handle it. So we send Jesus to do it. And he tasted death for every man. That's a remarkable statement that Christ, by the grace of God, tasted death in the place of every man. Aren't we glad? You've you, you got to be an animal if you're not. You should be. What a remarkable thing again. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. I want you to say law that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus cried that out. And you know, when I close my eyes in this world, and I'll do that, and I step through that veil, it will be into the light and not into the darkness. Those who are lost will step through the veil of death and begin to fall, and they'll continue to fall. And then they'll shout that, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The believer will never have to say that. 
No. Why? Because Jesus Christ tasted that for us. What a remarkable statement. And he says he did all of that by the grace of God. He tasted death on behalf of God and in the place of every man. Verse 10 tells us, for it was fitting for him, for whom all things, notice, and by whom all things, he is before all things and in him all things consist in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. And he's the captain in sense of the one who goes before anyone else. The idea is one who paves the way, who blazes the trail. Jesus Christ, Hebrews will tell us, is the author and the finisher of our faith to make the captain of our salvation complete through suffering. In other words, he became lower than the angels to suffer and die in our stead on behalf of every one of us who will come by faith and accept him, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. He's the captain. What's the baseball player? And his nickname is the captain. Thank you. Derek Jeter. He's, he's just known as the captain. And he should be a great player, used to be. But that's what Jesus is boasting on himself. I'm the true captain. He's the trailblazer. And he's gone before us in this frame, took on, took on this space suit. That's all it is, a space suit adapted for this earth and died in our place, tasted death and was made complete. That's the idea of perfect there through suffering. Verse 11 tells us, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. By this time, I'm sure the Jews are asking, if Jesus is God, why is he lower than the angels? Why do the angels outrank him? Why are they higher? And he's explaining all of that, that he came to enter into death, Jesus did, it was God's grace that he took our place. And then he's going to say, and remember this, he's not ashamed to call us brethren. We should have given our life to the Lord after we read that verse, and that was all. Because, you know, you might not admit it, but you got kin folks that ain't did the right thing and come Thanksgiving dinner or, or some kind of party or something, you really don't want to get too close to them. The, the black sheep, the this and that, oh, no, 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 no. We don't associate with him anymore. Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren. That's, that's great. And particularly in Jerusalem, where the sacrifices were still Offered. They were smelling them once again, and they were wanting to turn back. They were ashamed of Christ. To be a quiet believer or a secret believer or a closet believer, and Jesus proudly says, 
he is not ashamed to call us brethren because the payment has been complete now. And in heaven, as far as God Almighty sees it, we're justified, sanctified, and glorified. Don't matter what anybody says. If you've tasted the goodness of God, if you've truly given your life to the Lord, who cares what people say? That's what Jesus, our elder brother, is wanting us to understand. Your enemies might have a hard time with it. Oh, he's this. Oh, she's that. Oh, they're not walking right. Oh, if you don't listen to any, well, I've said a lot of good things you should be paying attention to. But I'm going to say this. It doesn't matter what people say. If you're getting your marching orders from Jesus Christ, and if you're doing what he's told us to do, walk on, walk on. Verse 12 says, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren, there it is, in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you, and again, I will put my trust in him, and again, call them brethren, saying, I will declare, and that's bring a, a good report, your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, and I will sing praise to you, and again, I will put my trust in him, and again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Now, you can take that verse right there and think about it until he comes back. What he's saying, you might not like it, but here's my children. I think that's what it says. Whom, yeah, that's what it said, God has given me. That's it. Don't get mad at me because he saved me. That's what he's saying. That's what he said. Don't get mad because he saved you. Pray and ask him to come in your life. Verse 14 says, Inasmuch then as the children, and that's us, have, taken, have partaken of flesh and blood, meaning we're part of the same family, humanity. He himself likewise shared in the same. He's come in human flesh, Jesus Christ, the same stuff that we're made of, the last Adam, once again, I don't like some translation says second Adam, but second tells me there's a third one, there's a fourth one, there's a fifth one. But when my Bible says the last Adam, that means there's no more coming. And that's what Jesus says about himself. He's the last Adam. And he came to pay our sin debt. And that's, this is why that through death, he might destroy him who had the power, the force, the strength of death. And that's the devil. So he might call us brethren, but he's not ashamed of us. He might destroy him who had the power of death. That's the devil. Jesus has taken death away. The fierceness of it. And we know he hasn't taken death away yet, and he will do that one day. I think my Bible tells me in, in, in a Revelation, he's going to take death and hell and throw it into the lake of fire. Thank you. So he said it. He set aside death power. That's what he's saying. There's still death. Are we afraid of death? I've never been that way before. 
I'm reminded of when the children of Israel were going across the Jordan River. The Holy Spirit says, because they have never, watch, watch the ark, because they have never been this way before. Same as death. I don't consider myself a bravado guy, a daredevil. And it always intrigued me. I've never seen it live. I've experienced something sort of like it, but it intrigues me that people would jump off bridges with the bungee cord. The closest I ever did that was when me and Erica, we went to Six Flags, and you know that little thing that goes, that's okay, I'll give myself a little credit for that. But jumping off a bridge on a bungee cord, I would be hanging up there, then let me go, and I'd say, well, I hope the bands are strong. I hope they haven't rotten yet. I hope the guy who came up with this wasn't high the day he came up with it, and I'm just a lucky guy who it all falls apart on. I'm thinking of all this stuff. I would be thinking of all this. And that's the way I consider death. We've never gone that way before. So there's always a little apprehensiveness about it because we've never been there before. And you know, you can say, it's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. And then you taste it. And I believe, notice I said, I believe. I don't think it's dark. And then you wake up in the light and you see Christ or you're in heaven. Because that would fear me, the darkness. I've told you before, I believe it's just a transition from one room. Christ has you to the next room. That's all I believe it is. We don't have to taste death. Thank God to that. So I'm saying you don't have to be fearful. And once again, you're a little apprehensive about it because you've never been that way. I'm reminded of a pastor, and he said this, I want to walk so close to the Lord, and it touched me because it's been 20 years. Pastor Mark Bird was teaching, and this is what he said. He said, I want to walk so close to the Lord that when I go across the river or Jordan River where I go, and it was this example, he says, I want stones there that I can step on. He says, I don't want to walk so f- I'm saved, but I don't want to walk when it's time for me to cross that river. It's just nothing there. By faith, you just, oh, I hope I make it. I hope I make it. That's a lifestyle. That's a lifestyle. And I said, that's what I want. I want to walk so close. If it's like that, I, I want to see all pavement. Even the river's there, but I want to see all pavement. Okay, oh, no problem. I got this. That's the way I want to see it. But we don't, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's telling us, you don't have to fear. I've paved the way for you. I've paved the way. I love you so much. I'm going to carry you through, and you're going to make it because I'm the captain of your faith. I'm the captain of your salvation. It says in 2 Timothy, nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded, Paul says, that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. 
I believe that. He says in verse 15, and release those who through fear, that's what the captain of our salvation has did for the believer, through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I've been to funerals before growing up that nothing was there but bawling and crying. We knew the person that had passed wasn't saved, and that's a terrible thing to go through. It's a terrible thing. We live in a culture, you guys, of denial. When I was 30, and that's been a good long time, when I was 30, I remember the media would tell me, oh, 30 is just a new 20. And when I was 40, they said, oh, that's just 40 is just a new 30. Watch commercials. This is true. I'm sitting there minding my own business, reading the word and watching the news, and they had a commercial, the audacity to say that 70 was the new 40. Have y'all seen that one? I almost fell off my chair. I almost fell back. I said, and that's just a little too much. That's just a little too much. You're crazy if you think that. God is so good. I'm thankful for God. He's so good that he lets the hair begin to fade. He, if you have hair, he lets it turn from black or brown to gray. He lets you feel the pain of walking. Can't even run anymore. And God is saying, you're going to leave here. You better know in whom you believe because you, you're leaving here. Don't think this is your home. I'm so glad God does that because he's shaking and wanting to wake you up that, hey, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna have to meet me. You need to meet me now. You need to give your life to me now. That's why he does that. It is not God's will that anyone should perish. And so he does all of those things. I'm going to read Ecclesiastes 12, 7 again because it's a sobering verse. I told you that. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. And so he does all these things letting you know you're going to meet your maker. You're going to meet your maker. Get ready. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 14, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring him with him those who sleep in Jesus. Verse 16, for indeed he does not give aid to angels, no salvation for those guys. But he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Romans 4, 1 through 3 says this, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And for you Sunday school students, if you're a believer, even though you're a Gentile, we're sons of Abraham. Hallelujah. Verse 17, therefore, in all things, he had to be made. He had to be made because the blood of bull and goats could never take away sins. He, God had to be made like man. 
like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Once again, I love that word propitiation. It's a place on, on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, that the high priest would go into the holy place and he would sprinkle, sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat where God's home was. The, the, the mercy seat, the top, Propitiation, where all the wrath of God, his righteous wrath, he poured on his son on the cross. Now we don't have to receive it. A great word. Verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered. I know you did. Being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. You know, Satan, he's great. Lust of the flesh, pride of life, lust of the eyes. He only has three tactics, and they must work very well because he's still using them to this day. What the believer has to do is walk close to the Lord and yield to his Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians tells us, no temptation has overtaken you except such as come to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Worship team can come up. Jesus Christ, as the cool old folks used to say, Jesus Christ has it going on. He is a wonderful friend. He is a wonderful God, full of grace and mercy. And the writer of Hebrews, I believe, with tears in his eyes and exhorting these Jewish believers, don't fall back. Don't go back to Judaism. Judaism is the cradle for Christianity. Don't go back and lose your souls. And I'm telling you now, he's saying, don't go back. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how life's disappointments may try to sway you to go back, don't go back. There's a great prize and reward for knowing me. I love you. I knew you were going to go through this when I saved you. Just hold on and continue to trust me, and you will find out I, meaning Jesus Christ, does all, do all things well. Let's pray. Father God, I'm so thankful that you're our Savior. For eternity, Lord, we will be amazed at that, God becoming man. God becoming man to save a rebellious generation. Lord, let us, let us never diminish so great of salvation that you have given us. Let us walk up right in that great salvation. Let us be quick to forgive because of that great salvation. Let us not have grudges, hold on to grudges or attitude because we have such a great salvation. 
Let us be quick to forgive because of our great salvation. Because when we do any of those things and allow any of those things to take away from your great salvation, we say it's not so great. You don't understand how I feel. You don't understand what they did to me. So your great salvation isn't so great. God forbid. Lord, I pray for anyone that's hurting, whether it's physical, whether it's mental, whether it's spiritual, Lord, that you would be who you are, that balm of Gilead. That if we would taste and see that you are good and you're in control and that we will allow you to come in and show us the beauty of your holiness we'll be okay Lord I pray for families at the church I pray for a Calvary Restore I pray for any church Lord that is presenting your word that you would bless the church Lord As the days are getting darker, may we become more light in this city. And Lord, I ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.